This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 305. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by co-host and producer extraordinaire, Matthew Marister, based in Columbus, Ohio. Yep. Call it C-Bus over here. C-Bus. And uh, I'm here in the Denver metro area, and uh, we're across the country, but somehow, you know, it's amazing. This, This day and age we live in. We're able to connect wirelessly and, and do crap like this, man. It's it's awesome. Funny thing is, you know, we've talked about it before on the show. Uh, I'll be seeing you here in a little more than a month at the USCCA Expo. Yes, sir. And uh, last year at the USCCA Expo was the first time you and I met in person. But we had you, you had been working <laughs> for the company <laughs> for a, a good while at that point. And uh, you've been, we've been friends, and we'd done podcasts and everything for quite a while before that. But it wasn't until about a year ago that we met for the first time face to face. Yeah, I got out of the car to pick you up from the airport, and you're like, "Dude, you're a lot taller than I thought you were." I was like, <laughs> menacing, dude. <laughs> yeah, you know. So Matthew picked me up at the airport in uh, the Cincinnati airport. Actually, it was. Yeah. Which is actually in Kentucky. Yeah, just across the river, across the border from uh, from actual Cincinnati. Uh, but it was cheaper for me to fly into the... Ex- it's funny because my, my, my son was born like three days before. My wife still doesn't let me live this down. And, uh, you know, we had the expo. We had a lot going on there. And Mitch drove my truck. Mitch is our social media manager. Drove my truck to Louisville. And a couple days later, I hopped on a plane on Friday I had to be there to the show by like basically noon or, or one o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, you picked me up in my truck from the airport that had just crossed the country. It was really strange. Like seeing <laughs> this little short Marine dude show up in my big white truck at the airport. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so we're really, really looking forward to the, to the concealed carry expo again this year or where again, we will have the broadcast booth all set up. Uh, broadcasting live for three days, all three days of that event from the show on the show floor. It is fun. It is awesome. And you will be able to watch and follow the live coverage all weekend long uh, through our YouTube channel, um, through Facebook as well. Uh, I think USCCA will be doing something as well to put it out there. And so it'll be a great show, a great time. We'll have tons of guests and tons of great interviews to bring to you live all weekend long from the show. It's going to be rad. And this is uh, airing, the, the expo's in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's that's new territory for us and, I, and also for the show. And uh, it'll be a great time. So, and this time I am driving my, I don't have any babies coming. I don't have any anybody due. Uh, but uh, I'll be driving to Pittsburgh with the truck, pulling a big old trailer and full of stuff. And pretty soon we'll be able to officially announce some really exciting stuff we'll be doing at the expo. So, folks... If you're anywhere near Pittsburgh, you're going to want to try to make it to the USCCA Expo because uh, ConcealedCarry.com will be doing some really, really cool, exciting stuff besides just the broadcast. So anyway, sorry. Um, kind of got off, uh, you know, talking about that. was not necessarily even planning on it, but it was just fun to reminisce and also start giving folks a, a heads up of what's, what's to come here in the next 45 days, roughly. Um, so today is the legislative update edition of the podcast uh this in our new format the fourth tuesdays of each month we now cover only legislative news we've got tons of great stories to bring to you today we're going to be talking about uh really the big thing for me and and where i i I intend to kind of focus some of our attention matthew is is talking about this idea of how some in congress want to they're basically trying to get more gun control in this country without actually passing any new gun control legislation. Hmm. Yeah, I always thought that they didn't want to take our guns away. Yeah. Well, did you see, I saw something just this last week that there was a, he's a writer, I think it was on uh, Slate or Salon, one of those two publications, and they're both lame publications in my opinion. And this guy was saying that uh, he had somehow picked up on 
the fact that they are bolt-action rifles that look tactical. They look assault-y. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he's like, you, he, he's basically saying, do we need to outlaw this crap? Like, yeah. if, if it looks, if it looks military grade, it needs to be outlawed. It's traumatic. <laughs> Traumatizing. This a was a. This was like a. I don't remember exactly the rifle. It wasn't a Ruger Precision rifle, but he could have looked at the Ruger Precision rifle with its rail and its fully adjustable, you know, comb and stock and everything, and 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 it, he would have said the same thing about it. The, you know, so something like the Ruger Precision rifle, a bolt action intended for precision shooting. You know, you could shoot a thousand yards, uh, maybe up to a mile with some calibers. And his point was, why does anybody need to shoot that far? And because the only people that need to shoot that far are military, and thus it's military grade, and thus it must be outlawed. What in the heck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's where the crazies are going, folks. <laughs> that's where they are going with this stuff. It's crazy. But now they're attacking, and we know that we've known this for a long time. We've talked about it before on the podcast, but uh, we got some some new stuff to cover on this subject today. They're going after the finance institutions, so let's talk about that. But coming up, uh, that'll be in just a little bit. Today's episode is brought to you, made possible by. Where's my sponsor list? There it is. <laughs> we have an online concealed carry course. Uh, while I prefer training in person and teaching in person. And while I prefer live fire training, because uh, I think all of you, everybody, all of us, like I'm taking a couple classes this year. Uh, I'm actually enrolled in a, a class with Dave Spaulding here in, a, in the first part of June. Really excited about that. And I'm also going to be taking a class from uh, Mike Seeklander and Rob Latham. I'm all, all signed up for those as well. Super excited, and I uh, might you know squeeze in some more training opportunities as well. I don't do as much training as uh, somebody like John Korea who like trains every stinking weekend, but uh, you know make sure I get about eighty plus hours a year in of training for myself. And uh, folks, you should be training too. But some of you live in a state maybe where it's a little bit more restrictive as far as getting a concealed carry permit, or maybe you'd like to add some reciprocity and you're a responsible concealed carrier, well, there's an option where you can apply for a non-resident Virginia concealed carry permit. And you could do that just by taking our simple online concealed carry course available on our website now. And you can go to concealedcarry.com forward slash online course and uh, check that out. All right. So depending on the state that you're in, uh, you know, getting that non-resident Virginia permit may add another state or two or three or however many uh, of reciprocity. Or for folks that live in like New York State uh, or New York City, for that matter, uh, or some other states that you know that are a little bit more restrictive as far as getting concealed carry permits that are may issue states or even almost not issue states as opposed to shall issue states, uh, you can get a non-resident Virginia permit and be able to maybe use that to then carry when you leave your dreadful state <laughs> i don't mean to make fun of anybody's <laughs> states but as far as concealed carry and guns go some of them are more dreadful than others right so check out the online concealed carry class from concealedcarry.com concealedcarry.com forward slash online course and then also today's episode made possible by glock e-trainer uh awesome dry fire training aid uh, go to glockytrainer.com to learn more and if you purchase that through our site, concealedcarry.com, you can save just this week uh, up through Sunday night, midnight. Uh, if you use coupon code DRYFIRESAFETY, you'll save 20% off. And that that coupon code also works on the new Barrel Block product that we sell on our site as well. Um, I, I demoed both the Glocky Trainer and Barrel Block in the Shop Talk just yesterday. Uh, so anyway, uh, at the end of the episode, we'll be announcing winner of... This week's podcast giveaway, and this week's winner wins a one-month free subscription to Laser X, the software that uh, we talked a little bit about last week uh, on Thursday, I think it was, talking about micro drills and whatnot, or maybe it was Tuesday's episode. I can't remember. I can't keep it all straight. Even if it was just one episode ago, dude, it's like, it's 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 in the brain and then it's out of the brain. I got too much other stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah cognitive stack right <laughs> my cognitive stack <laughs> like okay so when i talked with mark passamanic on that one uh way 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 back we did two episodes with him and he talks about like most people like like you might have like a stack of four or five things that you can do sort of like simultaneously all, all at one time uh so we're talking about like you know 
shooting a gun, you know, pressing the trigger, uh, using your sights, uh, uh, being aware of surroundings and t- the target and all, you know, like, like you start adding up that stack, uh, then like eventually you fill the stack and, and something else has to go. Like when you try to add something else to it, my, my cognitive stack most times is like two things that I can handle. <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, <laughs> like right now I'm too busy running off at the mouth and not looking at any comments from our Facebook viewers. Cause I can't do that. <laughs> it would throw me off. Okay. So I'm really on one today. <clears throat> Let's roll with, we're forgetting something, Matthew. Um, we should be moving forward to, uh, Andrew Branca's case case of the week. Of the week. There you have it, buddy. So we've got a case of the week. This week's called No Second Bite from the Apple under Ohio's new self-defense law. This is really interesting analysis from Andrew. Now, if you live in Ohio or if you're going to even visit Ohio, I'll be driving, I think, through Ohio here in a couple weeks or a little more than a month. So uh, this is good stuff to know regarding their new self-defense law. So this week's case of the week, here we go, queuing it up now. Hey folks, Attorney Andrew Branca here for Law of Self-Defense. This week's case of the week is a unanimous decision out of the Ohio Court of Appeals, State v. Krug, linked later in the text version of this post. It was released just this past Monday, March 18th, and it deals with a defendant, Krug, who was convicted of several stabbings in 2007 and sentenced to 37 years in prison after his claim of self-defense was found unpersuasive by the jury. With plenty of free time on his hands, Krug has already appealed his conviction three times without success. The recent adoption of Ohio's new self-defense law, however, apparently encouraged Krug to try for another bite from the apple. As one of several issues raised in this current appeal, Krug is arguing that Ohio's adoption of a new self-defense law to take effect March 28th necessarily means that the prior Ohio self-defense law under which he was convicted must have been unconstitutional, and therefore he's entitled to a new trial. Incidentally, this argument, if successful, would effectively require a new trial for every defendant who had ever previously unsuccessfully raised a claim of self-defense in Ohio and been convicted as a result. That's a lot of cases that would have to be retried, and don't think for a moment that this Court of Appeals is not aware of this implication in arriving at their decision. Now, the change in Ohio self-defense law was a big one indeed. In 49 states, it's long been the case that once a defendant successfully raises the legal defense of self-defense, the burden of proof is placed on the prosecutor to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. In Ohio, however, that burden of proof remains with the defendant to prove self-defense by a preponderance of the evidence. Although this distinction might sound technical, the real-world implications are substantial. In effect, it means that two self-defense cases with exactly the same facts could be easy acquittals in 49 states and yet an easy conviction in Ohio. Effective March 28th, however, Ohio joins the other 49 states in placing the burden of proof on self-defense on the prosecution to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt once the defendant has effectively raised that legal defense. When a new law like this is created, it's the norm that the law is purely prospective, future-looking in application, and that it does not apply retrospectively to prior cases. The exceptions to this general rule are when the statute explicitly states that it is to be applied retrospectively, which this Ohio law does not do, or if the new law is deemed to be of constitutional importance and, in effect, an acknowledgement that the prior law was constitutionally infirm and had to be fixed for constitutional reasons. In this appeal, among other issues, Krug is making that second argument— that Ohio, by joining the rest of the nation and placing the burden of proof on self-defense on the prosecution, means that Ohio's previous law that placed the burden on the defendant was unconstitutional. 
This Ohio Court of Appeals, however, finds that argument unpersuasive. They note that it's historically been the norm that the defendant has to prove the legal defense of self-defense, just as it largely remains the norm that the defendant must prove the legal defense of many legal defenses, such as the legal defense of insanity. Indeed, I find it remains a common misconception, even among highly informed self-defense instructors, that because the legal defense of self-defense is often labeled an affirmative defense, that the burden of proof is today still on the defendant. As already discussed, however, that's not the case, at least not after the defendant has successfully initially raised the defense of self-defense at trial. And that's a pretty low threshold for a defendant to meet. It's true that over the course of the last century and proceeding through this March 28th with Ohio, each and every state in the nation has ultimately chosen to shift the burden of proof on self-defense from the defendant to the state, essentially making self-defense a negative element of a use of force criminal charge against which the legal defense of self-defense is raised. This shifting of the burden of proof on the defense is, however, merely a policy preference expressed by the states. It's not a constitutional requirement. Placing the burden of proof on self-defense on the defendant, while currently unpopular among the states, remains a currently constitutional policy option. Indeed, any state that wished to revert to the old model of placing the burden onto the defendant on self-defense is free to do so without constitutional implications. That said, the trend has only been in one direction, from shifting the burden from the defendant onto the prosecution, onto the state, just as Ohio has done with its new law. As a result, self-defense cases in Ohio, based on events occurring on March 28, 2019 or later, will apply the burden of proof on self-defense on the prosecution, consistent with the new law. Cases based on events occurring prior to March 28th, however, like Krug's case, were constitutionally appropriate in placing the burden of proof on self-defense on the defendant, as the law then required. And the placement of that burden of proof on the defendant is no basis for an appeal of their conviction today. In effect, the defendant is obliged to play by the rules in place at the time they committed the act resulting in the criminal charges against them, period. And so this Court of Appeals unanimously rejects Krug's demand for a new trial under the new rule. If you'd like to read the entire decision, State v. Krug, you can find it at lawselfdefense.com forward slash Krug. As always, remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branker for Law Self Defense. Hey folks, Attorney Andrew Branca here. If these self-defense law issues are of interest to you and you'd like a really in-depth understanding of them, you might consider attending our upcoming Law Self-Defense Level 1 Live online class. This is a full-day Law Self-Defense Level 1 class taught live by me, but streamed online to you at your computer, tablet, or smartphone. We use a webinar platform, so there's plenty of opportunity for Q&A. This is the only one of these scheduled for 2019, folks. It's scheduled for Saturday, April 6th, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Mountain Time, and we only have three seats left. So if you're interested in participating, even if you just want more information, I would urge you to point your browser to lawselfdefense.com forward slash live online. One word, live online. There you have it. Another great case from attorney Andrew Branca of Law of Self-Defense. And uh, good clarification on this new law passed in Ohio, which is a big deal for Matthew and guys like him out that way, you know, changing where the burden of proof sits on these self-defense cases. Yep. Yep. So, uh, yeah, pretty much like it's got to be a new case. Yeah. I mean, and it kind of, it makes sense if you think about it, right? Sure. I think sometimes people think like they hear, well, these old cases are getting thrown out because a law that they were arrested on at the time was deemed, was found to be unconstitutional. So their convictions or they're having to go back through court or, or relitigate it, or maybe sometimes they're just being dropped and, and no charges are being sought. So it's like, I think that he's thinking the same thing, like, okay, well, you know, I'll try it. I mean, look, you, you, you've tried three appeals and you've lost every one of them. You're going to sit in prison for the rest of your life or you know, a good portion of it. So why not try? Right. So yep. you try and, you know, a for effort, dude. Now, some, some are probably listening and going, well, this doesn't really apply to me at all because I don't live in Ohio or never visit Ohio or whatever. Like that's fine. But like, there's still things here that we can take away from this. 
uh, that as far as like we shouldn't ever, I, I don't think I don't think we should ever hold faith uh, on on a law that changes in, even in our own states or even federally and go, oh, well, because of that, now this other thing is, is okay or was okay or back when I had to deal with this thing. Like, don't, don't, uh, don't count on that. The other thing is, uh, do you truly understand how the law of self-defense works in your particular state where you, where, where you are? Uh, do you understand what preponderance of the evidence and burden of proof means? Uh, Mark watching, he's an attorney, he gets it, but uh, uh, others, you know, probably don't even understand exactly what those various standards mean. Uh, you, you know, so I would encourage everybody to uh, take Andrew up on his opportunity to, t- to attend one of his level one classes. They're amazing. His virtual ones now are just, uh, they're, they're great because he used to be, you had to wait till he came close to you, you know, came to, to a venue near you that, that you could, that you could attend and uh, go through one of his classes. And now he's got these virtual ones as well, which are really great. And of course, lots of great content available via other learning platforms, DVDs, videos, etc. cetera, um, all available at uh, Law Self Defense. We also sell a lot of these same things on our own website at concealedcarry.com. All righty. So let's jump now, Matthew. Our first uh, story this week uh, comes to us out of New York City. Uh, their gun control law there uh, and the Supreme Court to, has announced they are going to be reviewing uh, that, uh, which is kind of a big deal. And so what this has to deal with is, um, you know, basically the, the thought here is that <clears throat> will the Supreme Court take a ruling like McDonald versus the city of Chicago, right, which happened back in 2010, where that basically forced, uh, you know, it changed, it changed a lot of things for the city of Chicago and for the state of Illinois, for that matter, uh, and really improved in a big way for Second Amendment rights there in, in Chicago and in the, in the uh, state of Illinois. Um, it's amazing to me because now folks in Chicago, we, we actually share quite regularly a number of justified self-defense cases in our justified segment, which will be next Tuesday. In fact, we'll have more justified stories for you next week on the podcast. And we're sharing more and more of those all the time that are coming out of Chicago, uh, which is really amazing because we have people actually carrying concealed in, in places like Chicago, actually able to defend themselves. Um, and, uh, and everybody thinks that assault weapons are restricted in Chicago and or Illinois, uh, but they're really not. Uh, and by you, you get what I mean when I say assault weapons, right? I don't actually truly believe that they are assault weapons, but that's that's the terminology the other side uses. Um, anyway, so there's this case in New York where currently they, they call them premises licenses, which means what? Well, it means that if you are a resident of New York City, you can have a handgun or a gun, a gun for that matter, but handguns especially are, are even more difficult uh, where it comes to these licenses are concerned. <clears throat> you can have a handgun in New York City if you go through their ridiculously long and expensive licensing process. And then that license only allows you to have a gun like that in your home. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, so... Like for people that are traveling in or through New York City, it becomes a big issue, uh, and so that that's what they're looking at here is the legality, the constitutionality of this these so called premises licenses, and so I, I think there's a, a a good chance that the Supreme Court will strike this down. I think I mean because just based on other rulings like Heller, like McDonald, you know, we're 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 seeing this movement to clarifying these types of laws and the fact that the Supreme Court is even going to take this case up is a big deal. And I, I think there's a good chance that we see something change there with regard to these licensing uh, procedures and, and and policies in New York City. What, what's your take, Matthew? Yeah, no, I, I think it's really, I think just on face value, the fact that the Supreme Court is taking up a gun case is as important as this. Um, or has the you know the implications to reach other things or influence other uh, other things uh, is important because for a long time they've been kicking the can down the you know just saying hey kick it back to the uh, the circuit courts and stuff and they haven't taken it up and now it's like all right you you see a couple cases here and there and this is kind of a big one um, in the article I think it'd be important if if um, you guys read the article um, it, in 
we're going to talk about how um, uh, later on and, and the importance of how legislators are trying to end around with gun, you know, re, uh, restrict guns without legislation. And and if you look, um, and we had uh, Maj Ture on a long time ago, mm-hmm. a while back, and he was talking about his thing is all gun control, the roots of all gun control are based off of racism. And, and, and if you read the article, it touches on New York specific um, law that initially targeted, it even says um, it, it targeted Italian immigrants, especially to try to disarm Italian immigrants at the time. So in, in, in the New York Times in, in, a, in a report in uh, September 29th, 1911, it was about a case involving a, an Italian immigrant named uh, Mariano Rossi. And the judge said, and this is from the, the report, Judge Foster did well in sentencing to one year in Sing Sing, Mariano Rossi, who carried a revolver because, as he said, it was the custom of himself and his hot-headed countrymen to have weapons concealed upon their persons. The judge warning, the judge's warning to the Italian community was timely and exemplary. Yeah. So, this, this law is over 100, you know, some of these laws are over 100 years old. Exactly. And so that's where the good moral character and proper cause where you have to petition for a right to have your your Second Amendment came because then now they can say, well, you don't have, you know, good moral character because you are of X descent and they are hot headed or whatever it might be, whatever discriminatory thing is vogue in the time. So all of these these laws, if you look at it, um, they were designed to to prohibit people not for a safe, not not for the safety purpose. It was to prohibit people that they didn't want to have firearms. Yep. It, was, it was control. Yep. Uh, and so it's it interesting that even in this article, uh, it's referenced. So, yep. You know, the current law in New York is so discriminatory, uh, particularly on the basis of income. Uh, because get this, guys, and I've known this for a while now. We've we've we actually ha- we've had an instructor in the concealedcarry.com instructor network for years now in Manhattan, and it's it's really interesting learning how he how he teaches his classes and and what he does with those students, especially the ones that he that he takes to the range. He actually has to go to New Jersey. Uh, to arrange to actually teach anything where there's live fire involved because uh, you can't do that in Manhattan or in New York City. And But uh, he, we had, uh, Jacob and I had lunch with him a, a number of years ago and he told us all kinds of stuff that just blew my mind about how New York City works. But get this though, for a three-year premises license, it costs $340. Uh, and that does not count and include a $88.25 fingerprinting fee. And I'm thinking, where in the world does it ever cost $88 for <laughs> fingerprinting? Like New that York. is insane. Yeah. New York City. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like there's, there's one place where it costs that. I mean, that's amazing. Fingerprinting never costs that much. You can do fingerprinting and FBI background checks for like 50 bucks. You know I mean? So it's just crazy. And I, by the way, that is, I'm sh- I know that <sighs> Based on what I remember from our, our instructor there, uh, uh, Lance, telling us about how things work in New York City, I know that that's not all the case, all the all the cost associated with getting getting that license. Uh, it costs uh, a lot of money to to own a gun in New York City. And then here's the thing: since 2018, uh, paper paper applications have been prohibited. You have to do everything electronically. So if if a if a person is a lower income resident and they don't have access to like a scanner. Uh, or they don't know, you know or, or maybe they don't even have the knowledge of how to do that. So it's not only financially, but it's also like, like generationally and information, you know, knowledge. Like if someone is not tech savvy, they're going to struggle being able to apply for a premises license in New York city. Oh, of course. And, and you know, what kills me is the argument that I, I hear all the time is that, um, voter ID laws are racist and discriminatory because people can't get IDs. Right. <laughs> right. And you don't need a computer. You just walk down to the, you know, the the DMV and get a get an ID. But but they have no problem saying, well, if you don't have access to an internet and a scanner and be able to scan and upload and you know do all these meet make all these meetings and things, then you know you just you just miss out. You know, and it's like, dude, you're making this incredibly difficult just for the fact just for the purpose yep. of making it difficult. There's no reason to do that. Um, and so, 
it's it's when you when you see stuff like that, you know the hypocrisy, and you know that it's not it's not a valid reason. They're not doing it for valid reasons. It's purely purely punitive. All right, let's move along here. We've got another New York-related story, uh, and this was actually a U.S. District Court that struck down New York's ban on tasers and stun guns. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but just know that New York's had this, and this, this, I believe, applies to the whole state. We're not just talking about New York City right now. We're talking about New York State for a long time has had a ban on tasers and you know, similar, you know, stun gun type devices. And uh, that has been struck down mm-hmm. and actually specifically said that under the Heller decision. So, so again, going back to some of these big time Supreme court cases, I mean, they're having long time repercussions on some of these extremely restrictive and, and I believe unconstitutional laws. Yeah. And I won't go real deep, like you said, but um, the, the whole case, you can, there's a link in there. If you go to page 23, I read the whole thing. It's really interesting, but if you're not like, you know, interested in legal stuff, go, go down to page 23 and it, and it talks about um, compelling interest in promoting public safety and preventing crime. And that's kind of the nexus of where you see the Heller decision. And they say, well, the second amendment does have limitations, right? Like you can't own a tank or you can't own this or that. And it, they, they base it off of this. The the common use. uh, Correct. Clause or whatever. Common use and and intermediate and uh, strict scrutiny where to, in order for them to put a limitation on a, uh, on a constitutional right, there has to be compelling evidence um, that doing so will promote public safety or, or the outcome will, um, will promote public safety. They have to prove that it will, like this will promote public safety and this is what we want to do. And this is why it's important that we limit this constitutional right. And, and so um, when they say, you know, so, so it, it just, it will give you a little insight into when you make arguments or talk to people about, well, the second amendment is limited. You can't own this or that. So why should you own, you know, a semi-automatic handgun? And it's like, well, that doesn't, it's, there's no proof that not owning a semi-automatic handgun will promote public safety. So, so it, it will help you kind of understand those, those arguments a little better, but yeah. page 23. <laughs> yep. Good stuff, man. Switching now to Chicago uh, or Illinois at least, but this is on the Chicago Tribune.com. Uh, Lake County circuit, circuit court judge ruled on this last Friday that the village of Deerfield overstepped its authority last year when it enacted a ban on assault weapons five years after the Illinois legislature declared such regulations the exclusive power of the state. So uh, Illinois, like a number of states, and and good for Illinois, five years ago, passing a preemption statute basically said that on matters, especially of of Second Amendment related things, uh, says the state sets the law on this, you know, and uh, a, a city, a county that that goes against that or contrary to that is in violation of that preemption statute. Now we have a preemption statute here in Colorado that means diddly squat these days because we had a judge and it didn't make it all the way up the chain and get, you know, fixed or anything, but we had a, a, uh, a court ruling that, uh, has allowed preemption to, uh, uh, or, or at least, uh, for the city of, and County of Denver to preempt the state, on, uh, on on a few gun related uh, regulations, and also now uh, Boulder, uh, you know, with their whole assault weapon registration scheme uh, that they've got going on up there. Uh, preemption statute is really awesome, and it's good a good thing to have, I think, so you don't end up with a whole bunch of cities and counties doing all these crazy different things. And as you're traveling through your own neighborhood, sometimes. I mean, I can cross, like, <clears throat> on my way to our new office warehouse here in, in the Denver metro area, I go from where I live, which is in Lakewood, and I cross through the city and county of Denver because they have this weird little arm that comes out that got annexed in, you know, however many years ago. Um, and I, I go through city and county of Denver, and then I go through a bunch of other little municipalities just to get to where our office is, all in just a span of, like, 10 minutes. And if you have all these cities and counties doing crazy, ridiculous stuff on the Second Amendment, you have no idea sometimes where you are exactly and what rules you got to follow. So I think preemption statutes are good, but they're only good if they actually carry weight, which 
is not really the case so much anymore here in Colorado. But good on Illinois because in this case, the circuit court judge recognized, hmm, the state has a law and you're trying to preempt that. So shut that crap down. Yep. Yeah, in, in the whole case, I mean, if you just read the art, the the headline, you'd think, okay, well, they struck it down because the weapons ban was illegal. But it, it it doesn't have any. It really doesn't address the weapons ban. Period. It, it just addresses the preemption, and that's why, kind of the procedural stuff that with the law, where you know you can't you can't ban the, the firearm because there's preeminence, so or preemption. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah. So don't get confused with with the headline, but it is all about. About preemption, and, and I, I was thinking about you, Riley, um, and Jacob, because I know the, the struggles you guys go through. I mean, you have a law in the books, and then they're just like, "Oh, well, we, we just won't follow that one." You know, we'll just pick and choose, and it's like, this is crazy. But you know, yep, what yep. it is, I guess. All right, Politico has a story here. By the way, folks, all stories that we share on the podcast, uh, these particularly these news stories, we always uh, put these in the show notes. And today's episode show notes, when this is published, uh, uh, you'll be able to go to concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 305 uh, for uh, a short link to today's uh, show notes um, <clears throat> and all these stories. So you can go read this stuff for yourself. Politico has a story called Ocasio- Ocasio-Cortez. Okay, so everybody <clears throat> is familiar with AOC, right? She's... <laughs> come to uh yeah she's really you know she's risen very quickly uh as a star in washington dc for whatever reason why i have no idea she and other democrats squeeze big banks on guns immigration and climate change uh and then here's a quote this is this is the sub tag uh the sub headline here not everything has to be done through legislation explicitly ocasio cortez told, told politico so here's the here's the deal. If you read this article, it'll become very clear that what some lawmakers like her and others are trying to do, or they're considering doing, is working to get banks and other financial institutions to make it difficult to do business in the firearms industry. And in that way, go after the Second Amendment, right? And it sounds like it says right here in the article, the lawmakers are leveraging seats on the very powerful House Financial Services Committee to influence the banking and finance industry. Uh, <clears throat> that's that's astonishing to me, right? Mm-hmm. This is like almost like blackmail in a way. It's like, we're going to come after you guys. We're going to come after you big banks and after the, the finance industry if you don't start on your own accord, establishing anti-gun policies surrounding trade and commerce and finance, uh, and that's that's just amazing to me. I mean, but this is this is the battle that we are in. It's not just about write your senators, write your con- congressmen, you know, uh, you know, grassroots stuff. Like it's it's also a battle in the business world that they're trying to use businesses to come after the second amendment. What do you think about this, Matthew? Yeah, it, it's, it's scary, man. I mean, you, you think we, ha- you think we're a country of laws, right. And people operate within a framework and we have a mutually agreed upon like set of standards where we say we're going to obey the law and we're going to do what's right. And um, when you see stuff like this, when you have to end around a law and you have to start going behind and pressure people to do things, then innately you have to question what, why they're pressuring, like why, if it's so good, why do you have to do it in a, in a end around sort of way? If it's so recognizable and everybody agrees with it, why do you have to go and you can't legislate or you can't bring it out in the open and have a discussion where people discuss it? Why do you have to, you know, uh, uh, do it, like you said, kind of extort people? It, it's, it's, it's strange to me because this has been going on for a long time. I mean, I, I remember seeing, and I don't know if, if you remember, but uh, there's a video that Eric Holder, while he was the attorney general, um, or it might have been even before when he he might've just been appointed attorney general. Anyways, um, he says that 
quote, we have to fundamentally change the way people look at, at guns. Um, and so that was their intent. And that is still their intent to fundamentally change the way people react to guns. And, and if you can demonize, if you can make the gun look like something, a tool of like barbarians or a tool that like is very, um, a, a very bad in itself, then the person who owns it by nature becomes bad, right? Corrupted. And so now you can, you know, kind of relegate these people and take their opinions and just throw them in the garbage because they're, they're dangerous people. They're, they're bad people because they own guns that are, are bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that's their whole mentality. And it's just becoming, it's kind of gaining more ground, I think, as we go along. But we got, yeah, we got to fight this stuff. We got to be, got to pull this stuff into the open, dude. I, I, I really, truly believe that's the only way to stop it. Yeah. <clears throat> this is, uh, this is politics at its finest, finest, right? Um, where they can't get what they want, the normal route. They know that. They can't get things through the Senate the way they'd like to. Uh, they probably can't get some of the stuff, you know, across the the current president's desk. Uh, I'm sure that many of them are just biding their time for 2020, thinking surely, surely that, you know, they'll, they'll be able to get a, a new president and perhaps even a new Senate. And then, oh boy, all all heck will break loose. Uh, but in the meanwhile, let's put pressure on the banks. Let's put pressure on on the investors, on the finance institutions. And uh, yeah, uh, interestingly enough, there's there's uh, states and and other uh, organizations even that are fighting from you know the same a similar battle from the other direction. You know, like Louisiana, uh, a while back, uh, they actually prohibited it was Citigroup and I can't remember the other bank Bank of America I think uh, from uh, participating in a uh, a bond sale uh, and they said look basically because you and I think there's even a law there that if if you are a bank or financial institution that um, I could be wrong on this but but this is what I recall about Louisiana but basically if you have anti second amendment policies, right then you can't do business in our state sort of thing like mm-hmm. you know so so that's kind of interesting and there's also a story here from from Politico as well highlighting senator Kevin Kramer he's from uh, North Dakota and he's proposing legislation that is designed to discourage big banks from cutting out the firearms industry and you know so so there's there's pressure on the other side now too uh but uh his idea is that look Bank, our banks and financial institutions, which are in fact regulated, right? They should not be able to not serve firearms-related businesses who are doing business that is completely legal and lawful and acceptable business, right? Like it's totally one thing if we learn of some company that's blatantly you know, like I, I remember. Do you remember the story? That some somehow somebody was selling on Amazon these uh, auto select you know uh, uh, select fire you know uh, devices for Glocks, but they were being sold as airsoft accessories. Mm. Like they they worked on airsoft guns, but but people learned and picked up on the fact these were actually full auto sears uh, that you could buy off of Amazon for like 50 bucks and put on your Glock and turn it into full automatic, right? Like it's one thing to learn about something like that that's like legitimately illegal and blatant violation of law and like shut it down, freeze their assets, freeze their bank accounts, uh, not allow them to sell anything. But when we're talking about completely legal, lawful, well within the bounds of the law, business operations and banks trying to get in the way of that, like that's an issue. Mm-hmm. And so th- this law, which he calls the Freedom Financing Act, would curb banks' access to loans from the Federal Reserve if they refuse to serve legal firearms businesses for reasons outside of traditional underwriting. Uh, the bill would also restrict payment card networks from declining to serve the industry because of political or reputational concerns. Meanwhile, you have businesses like Levi's actively trying to work against the second amendment right uh and you've got and we've we've reported also on uh let's see it was a uh, uh shopify which is a big time online merchant provider uh you know that 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 has 
started to make things more difficult for business uh, firearms related businesses. Uh, and there's there you know PayPal right can't you're not supposed to be able to use PayPal for firearms related stuff you know so uh, I, both in both cases like I don't see anything happening legislatively on the side of like Senator Kramer's bill. Um, I don't see anything legislatively happening necessarily on the finance side from uh, like AOC and her cronies. Um, But I do see that side probably having a little bit more, a little bit more weight. Like especially, you know, when it's, when I read that they're going to try to use like leverage um, the power of the house uh, finance committee to, you know, kind of force the hand of these banks. Like that's pretty scary stuff. Mm-hmm. Very scary. Yeah. This would be a time to play the cricket sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it, I, I know we talk about this and I, I don't, you know, I don't mean to like bore the, the listeners because I know in our legislative updates, it always kind of comes down to this, like this, doom this feeling of doom like man we can't do anything and and everything's kind of gone gone off the rails but i mean no matter what it is our country is is pretty solid and, and you know even if you just look at what's what's going on with the special you know uh special investigation and everything i mean like no matter what it is our country is, is pretty strong and, and while it might veer off a little bit there's enough people and, 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 the, and the constitution is pretty solid where I, I always have faith that, you know, the, the right thing will prevail in the end. And, um, you know, you just got to fight for it, man. Everybody's always going to try to take what's good, you know, and you just got to fight for it. Yep. For sure, man. Speaking of the fight, we now bring you to our new segment. We're going to call two minute warning. Uh, <laughs> That's Jake or uh, Matthew's idea. So uh, good thinking, buddy. So what it is here is we got a bunch of, of legislative update stories that we're going to cover in a very short time frame. Okay, so we're shooting for two minutes, and uh, so here we go. First up, concealedcarry.com reports concealed carry reciprocity change in New Mexico and Louisiana. So just this last week, New Mexico and Louisiana had, that that used to honor each other's concealed carry permits no longer does. All right. So if you are a resident of New Mexico or Louisiana, uh, you will no longer be able to, to rely upon your current, you know, resident state's uh, uh, permit. So either Louisiana or New Mexico permit to carry in those other states. Uh, reciprocity no longer exists. Sometimes these sort of things happen. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it goes. So no more reciprocity in Louisiana and New Mexico for each other. What's up next there, Matthew? Let's see. After that, we have Washington firearm seizure. Let me pull that story up. Okay. So there's a couple bills here in Washington. Um, and let me see. House Bill 1465 um, would require uh, CPL holders to undergo state background checks. So because the uh, FBI is no longer going to be conduct, uh, providing the courtesy NICS checks for uh, the department. So uh, that's going to change the process there. Um, House Bill 1786 uh, would expand firearm seizures. So basically, it's expanding on their um, their red flag laws, uh, and and they all are still, I believe, uh, in in Washington. I still believe that they this not going to change um, the ex parte portion of that. Um, Senate Bill 5027 um, would expand uh, the extreme risk protection order. So this would also extend it to minors. And with the particular thing about this is that the minor, if it's in the, the, the home of the adult, of an adult, then the, the adults lose their right to possess a firearm for uh, self-defense as well while, that, while they're in custody of that minor. So uh, pretty weird implications with that law. Yeah. You know, I look at Washington State and to me, the, I put this in the category of, well, we passed all this you know, well, they had the state uh, initiative or whatever, right? 1639. You know, so we got all this gun control law stuff passed this last year. And, uh, but it didn't go far enough. Like, what what more can we do? And it's always like, I know there's some people who say there's no such thing as a slippery slope. Bullcrap. There's always a slippery slope. You know, we did this one thing. So now let's go after the next thing. Now let's go after the next thing. Uh, so specifically about this extreme risk protection order, which does exist in Washington state, but the current one, they don't feel like goes far enough. 
So they got to do something more with that, right? Crazy. Um, it is crazy. So uh, there you go. That's uh, what's going on in Washington State. Next up, we have some stuff going on here in Colorado. Uh, according to NRA ILA, Colorado, contact needed. Senate passes red flag legislation on second reading. Uh, so they do a first reading, a second reading, and a third reading. Uh, that's 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 where it really gets real. Okay, so basically they have one more reading of this bill, and then it, it will be passed, if if uh, or it could be passed, right? I'll tell you this is what I know here in Colorado. Uh, they're looking at this uh, red flag bill. Uh, the House, it's it's already, you know, it's, it's done and over with, right? There's, there's a bigger margin in the House uh, in favor of this bill than in, there is in the Senate. There's a, a lot wider margin between Democrats and Republicans in the House than there is in the Senate. The Senate is still pretty even, although it is democratically controlled. Um, what I can tell you is that it's going to come down to possibly as narrow of a margin as one vote in the Senate here in Colorado. Uh, so folks, uh, if you are in Colorado or if you have a mind to, uh, you, you should be writing and contacting your state senators, uh, right now in Colorado and really urging them to strongly oppose house bill 1177, uh, be smart, be articulate about reasons why this is, this type of legislation is an, is an issue, is a problem. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, momentum for this uh, legislation, um, because it's driven by, uh, I, I, I'll just say, I, I know this guy somewhat personally. I've associated with um, the sheriff of Douglas County here, um, Tony Spurlock. I, he's a good man, all right, and he feels like he's doing what is right in his mind. He's generally a conservative uh, sheriff, but he has picked up the torch on this red flag thing because they lost an officer. That in his mind he he feels would it would not have happened if they had had red flag uh, the the red flag the red flag law here in Colorado at the time. Um, I'm not convinced that's the case. I think Sheriff Spurlock is mistaken uh, in some of his thoughts and motivations on supporting this red flag legislation. He's one of the few. Um, conservative-leaning sheriffs in the state that is actually in support of this legislation. But uh, anyway, that's where it's at. Uh, write your senators right now. This is where it counts because this had, could happen here very soon uh, in the next few days where they could pass this under the uh, after, uh, after a third reading, okay? And I'm pretty sure that our new governor here would sign this bill in a heartbeat. So uh, we got we to gotta get this defeated. Next up, Tennessee also looking at a red flag bill. And uh, they have some other gun control bills uh, that they are looking at as well. Uh, so uh, let's see here. The, we know about the red flag thing. It's again, it's something else. Uh, that's something that Tennessee is considering. But also, Senate Bill 1025 would un- would unnecessarily require that those receiving firearms from individuals unable to legally possess them due to domestic violence commission convictions must file an affidavit with the court they are legally allowed to possess firearms. <sighs> what? Matthew, yeah. can you explain this? It's ridiculous. Um, basically, they're trying to write a, a state law that pretty much mirrors a federal law that doesn't allow you to, you know, uh, transfer a, f- a firearm to uh, to somebody who's not legally allowed to own it. Yeah. So, um, so once again, they're saying this the law, this law would if you are going to acquire from. Okay, so for those receiving firearms, so in other words. Like, let's pass a red flag bill, right? And because of that, there may be situations where someone is accused of or charged with or even convicted of domestic violence, and so they may have to surrender the guns. And so on the other side, somebody that's legally allowed to possess those guns, so let's say a family member, an uncle, let's just say perhaps, you have an uncle, like for whatever reason, you cannot any longer, due to some domestic violence conviction or whatever... Uh, or an ERPO issue, uh, you can no longer legally possess a gun. So you go, hey, uncle, I'd like to give you or sell you my guns. And the uncle has no criminal history, nothing on his record that would prohibit him from owning a gun. And this law would force the uncle to file an affidavit with the court that he is legally allowed to own those guns and thus he can receive those guns. It's like, what? Since when do we have to file paperwork that says we are law-abiding? It, it makes like no that's sense. Just, that's just weird to me. Yeah. 
All right, that's terrible. That's Senate Bill 1025 in Tennessee. And then uh, Senate Bill uh, 1178 is their version of a red flag bill. All right, so go uh, in Tennessee, fight against that crap, all right? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, All righty, let's see. NRA ILA reports in California, gun show, ban legislation, and vehicle storage bills to be heard in committee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not cool. Uh, This part of it has to do with... uh, uh, a Miramar gun show that was had been around in California for a long time. They they whittled away by like stopping it. Then it went back and forth. And then they said, okay, we'll take it to this court. And so uh, finally, they're I guess they're going to decide on whether or not it's going to be legal to just ban uh, all all gun sales or shows. Uh, period. Uh, you know, end end quote. Um, so there's that. There's uh, uh, they're talking about gun violence restraining orders, uh, extending that to five years. If you get, you know, convicted, I don't know what you want to call it other than found to be, you know, uh, a risk. Um, so there's going to be that. And uh, Assembly Bill 893 uh, would prohibit the sale of firearms and ammunition. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Assembly Bill 688, uh, which would place stringent storage requirements. So this is where um, basically they're going to put laws similar to laws that mandate how you store it inside your home. They're going to place laws uh, on how you store it in your vehicle when I, I suppose you go into these uh you know, establishments that don't allow you to. So now, not only do you have a law that prohibits you from taking your lawfully possessed firearm into a business, then you have to leave it in your, in your car. Now you have to lawfully lock it up in your car. It's, it's crazy, but that's, that's California. So yeah, that's what's going on. For sure, man. All right. So what else we've got in Vermont, uh, legislation, uh, dealing with handgun waiting periods. All right. So, of course, we got to wait longer to buy a handgun. Senate Bill 169, so it's already gone through the Senate, uh, is, is heading to the House of Representatives, and the House Committee could start working on this legisla- legislation early next week. All right? It's important that gun owners continue to contact their lawmakers. Okay, so what is this bill? What does it have to deal with? It creates a 24-hour waiting period for purchasing handguns. The committee went on to incorporate fixes to last year's magazine ban, as well as remove the sunset date on an exemption for competitors at shooting competitions and address an oversight whereby responding law enforcement from out of state could be in violation of last year's magazine ban. So they view these as fixes, these other things, and they've added all this to this bill. Uh, But the big thing here, that the focus of the bill was to create a 24-hour waiting period for purchasing handguns. Uh, well, what I could tell you is that uh, statistics have shown that waiting periods don't mean diddly squat, on, at least on yeah. violent crime. Yeah, no, n- not at all. I, it, it, absolutely, there's no proof that it shows any sort of uh, this cooling off period or whatever they want to call it. Zero effect. Yep. So, I don't know. And then we have some legislative updates out of Delaware. Matthew, what's the skinny on that? Yeah, House to Vote on Gun Control. So that actually occurred today. Uh, This was House Bill 63, and uh, it amended the current law on access uh, to um, uh, firearms to create a blanket prohibition for having having firearms unsecured. Um, Basically, another another, uh, storage part of it is another storage law. Um, And it passed, and this is what it said in uh, in the... Uh, legislative wrap-up. It said uh, making unsafe storage of a firearm a misdemeanor was voted out of committee, so it passed the committee and awaits action in the House. So it would change Delaware Code on safe storage of firearms by making a crime when someone intentionally or recklessly stores or leaves a loaded firearm where a minor or other person prohibited unauthorized by law can access the firearm and the unauthorized person obtains a firearm. So, I I mean, I, I understand what they're trying to do, but I mean, if you left a firearm in the possession, able, easily accessible to a child and some sort of problem happened where that child shot themselves or a neighbor or whatever, and law enforcement was called, there's a crime that is, you know, like uh, a child neglect. There's misdemeanors levels and felony levels. I mean, it's already a crime. You can't, I mean, anybody reasonably would say, yeah, you're not supposed to leave a loaded gun with in the you know, vicinity of a child. So these types of laws, I think they're just punitive. They're really punitive and, and, and I don't understand how they're going to be enforced, but 
I don't know. But that's it. That's uh, Delaware. Yeah. There you go. And I'm going to throw one more out, man, Matthew, and that is uh, this update on the uh, lawsuit that the Firearms Policy Coalition is leading on the bump stocks. They did get kind of uh, – they were they were hoping for a temporary injunction on that law, uh, but that did not go through. Uh, so they have announced that they have expedited their they, – they have uh, been able to get an expedited ex- – an expedited appeals process uh, to uh, send this up to the Court of Appeals in the D, uh, for the D.C. Circuit Court. All right, so uh, so that's, you know, we'll keep following along uh, with this uh, lawsuit uh, that, uh, like I said, is led by the Firearms Policy Coalition as well as the Firearms Policy Foundation. And uh, they're working to get this bump stock ban overturned. And I think they have a pretty interesting and compelling case. And, of course, we talked about this with uh, uh, Adam Kraut on the podcast, uh, you know, a dozen or so episodes ago. And uh, we'll keep following it along and see what happens. Uh, hopefully we get, a, you know, a win with this one here somewhere. All right? Yep. So there you have it, folks. That's a two-minute uh, warning uh, where I guess basically the idea is we try not to spend more than two minutes on every on, on each story. Is that the idea? Or are we only supposed to spend two minutes for everything? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it was pretty, uh, pretty, you know, pretty tough uh, call to to cover all that in two minutes. But yeah, if you need more in depth analysis on those, uh, check out the links because um, you know we just kind of give you an overview of that. <laughs> I, I I think we did. You know, if it, if it was only two minutes on every every story or less, I think we did a pretty good job because we got through yeah. like eight stories or something in like <laughs> eight minutes or ten minutes or something. So we did pretty good. All righty. So, folks, that brings us to the wrap-up here of the podcast. Again, today's episode made possible by the uh, Glock e-trainer, available now on sale uh, this week only, up through Sunday night. Uh, so it'll expire, I think it's March 31st at midnight. And if you use the coupon code DRYFIRESAFETY, D-R-Y-F-I-R-E, S-A-F-E-T-Y, Dry Fire Safety. Uh, coupon code will get you 20% off Glocky Trainer and also 20% off the Barrel Block product, uh, which is another good one. And uh, what else? Uh, we've got the uh, online concealed carry course. Uh, I think Matthew had to uh, bug out of the episode, so uh, he's got to go He's got to go pick up his daughter from school, so that's totally, totally cool. Uh, appreciate Matthew for everything he does. Uh, so... Uh, online concealed carry course uh, go check it out concealedcarry.com forward slash online course and you can apply for a Virginia state non-resident permit uh, if that's something of interest to you and if it and here's the thing you can use the concealed carry gun tools app and particularly our reciprocity map builder tool within the app there and uh, so you can go in here to uh, maps and reciprocity and you can say like let's say I'm just going to use an example. Let's suppose I live in, um, come on, there we go. Let's suppose I live in California, all right? This would be a good one. Let's say I'm a California resident. So I'm going to select that one. And so it's going to give me my reciprocity map. I see quite a few interesting pockets of red because California doesn't have the greatest reciprocity because of the fact that California doesn't honor anybody else's permit, right? So a lot of reciprocity agreements are based upon you accept ours, we'll accept yours. So let's say I'm in California. I have a California resident permit. Uh, those of you that are lucky enough to have that, good for you, but your reciprocity may not be that awesome. But if I was able to add a Virginia non-resident permit through going through our online concealed carry course, uh, Virginia non-resident. I can select that here also in the reciprocity map builder tool and you'll see my map just got a lot more green. And that's one of the reasons why you might want to consider having a secondary permit, a non-resident permit. Now, I also have one for the state of Utah. Uh, it makes a big difference. Uh, well, not a huge difference, but it gets me a couple more states like Nevada and Washington state uh, where for me, I have a Colorado resident permit. And so having the that additional non-resident permit makes a difference. So Anyway, Mark says California has reciprocity. Uh, yeah, so actually they have states that recognize their permit, but not necessarily any reciprocity, right? Because they don't really recognize anybody else's. And that's the idea of reciprocity. So anyway, uh, all right. So that's just one, that's another way you can use the tool. If you want to see if adding something like a non-resident Virginia permit would get you greater reciprocity, then you can use the, the reciprocity map tool in the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app to 
to, to figure that out if you're if there's any benefit there. And if not for Virginia, you can look into, and there's usually opportunities where you can get training for Utah and Florida non-resident permits. And also Arizona non-resident permits are something that's also available. And in all any one of those four states that I just mentioned, Arizona, Utah, Florida, Virginia, may be able to grant you greater reciprocity by having a combination of permits. So there you go. A little tip from me here today. Let's now get to this week's winner of the giveaway, which was for one free month of Laser X, which is great dry fire uh, software. Uh, we had 522 entries. Good job, guys. Uh, so here we go. And by the way, this next week, this next week's giveaway, both on Thursday's episode for the Facebook Live giveaway. Oh, my phone just fell over there. For the Facebook Live on Thursday, we'll be giving away uh, Barrel Block. All right, to lucky winners. And uh, then following that next Tuesday, our weekly giveaway for the sign-up. This is the one. So the Facebook thing on Thursday, or those that, that comment, like, share in the Facebook uh, live feed, they, they're entered automatically into that giveaway on Thursday. Everybody is welcome to make sure that you go to our website, concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize once per week. It changes over every week, week to week to week. And make sure you go to to that link, concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize, and make sure you sign up each week for our weekly giveaways. Uh, so you do that. And this next week, we'll be giving away also Barrel Block. All right? So lucky winners. This week's winner, I need to get that drum roll music loaded into the sound cart here so we can we can use it, right? But uh, maybe we'll just use crickets for our drum roll this week. <laughs> that doesn't sound very exciting at all, does it? That wants me to go to sleep. Uh, this week's winner of one month free LaserX training software is Alan D. Alan D. His uh, email address has a 339 and at yahoo, yahoo.com. Alan, you'll get an email from me uh, announcing you as a winner and, and providing or asking you for details how we can get that uh, uh, prize over to you. So uh, congrats to Alan D. And congrats to all of you for supporting us on the podcast and signing up for the, for the giveaways each week and for uh, just being here and being you. So continue to be awesome and be responsible, concealed carriers. And uh, I'm going to let you all go. A reminder to train often, train safe, or excuse me, train right, train often, and train safe (laughs) so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.